Would you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah? We're in the sixth chapter, and uh, believe it or not, we only have uh, three more Sundays before we complete the book of Nehemiah, um, and uh, that's because next week I'm going to read three chapters. That, no, not <laughs> but uh, we actually are coming to uh, the, the last parts of the, this series of studies. But we're in chapter six. We're going to read it in its entirety. If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we do so? And if that's not something you want to do, then you may remain seated. But it begins in verse 1 as follows. It says, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and have seen even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah." Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply, nothing like what you are saying is happening, you are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands." One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, the, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut up in, his, in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, because they have, of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. And so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in, the, in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard about this and all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Jehoanan, had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Let's start with prayer. Father, I ask as we look at this chapter and the events that are described there, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would guide and direct our thoughts to where you want them to be, that, Lord, we might not only know what the text says and be able to say we understand the Bible story we just read, but more importantly, Lord, we ask that that story by your Spirit would read our hearts and our minds and tell us things about ourselves that we desperately need to know, that we might bring our lives into greater agreement with what you want. We ask for your help in this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. From the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, it became very apparent that the enemies of Israel were willing to attempt to do anything to stop the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. I mean, they had employed a number of usually effective stratagems, 
uh, they had tried compromise. Basically, hey, let's do this together so that they could undermine the work from inside. They'd used ridicule and insults and belittling. Uh, they had used threats of violence and probably even attempted it at certain points. And then there was the disruptive divisiveness of trying to get different groups within the city to compete and fight with one another over how things should take place. All of these attempts obviously had failed, not even failed to just slow the work. They, couldn't, they weren't able to stop it, much less slow it. And so it might be easy to say, well, we've got that behind us. We've succeeded in weathering the storm. Now let's continue to finish the work. And yet something we need to understand, that in the same way that Sanballat never gave up his efforts to destroy Nehemiah and the work, so also the enemy of our souls, Satan, will never relent. His ruthlessness is unending. And we see it even in his encounter with Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. I mean, when in the Matthew 4, it tells us about Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days and fasting and Satan coming and tempting him, that at the end of it, as Jesus has resisted him over and over again, he does just exactly what James said would happen. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so it says in Matthew 4:11, then the devil left him. But interestingly, in the parallel account in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 4, 13, he adds this little commentary. He left him until a more opportune time. In other words, the, you may successfully resist the enemy's approaches and attacks, but you need to know for sure it's just a matter of time before he's going to try to find a new way to come and catch you unawares and off guard and to keep you from being able to move forward with God's will in your life. And so it was with Sambalat and his cronies. As a project continued to go forward and was now nearing its completion, they got more panicked, more desperate, that they employed any kind of diabolical means they could to try to hinder the work. And essentially what they did is they became very personal. They began to attack the person of Nehemiah. In fact, Jesus said the principle works this way in Mark 14, 27. Strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep. In other words, if they can bring Nehemiah down, they were pretty sure they could bring the entire project to an end. Keep in mind that Sanballat had begun by attacking the project. Remember early on, he began to say, it's too big a job, you can't finish it, you don't have the resources, you don't have the skills, you guys don't know what you're doing, it's too big a job, just walk away and give it up. But they persisted anyway. And then after that, he began to attack the people who were doing the project, threatening to kill them and getting them to turn against each other. Those having failed, now he redirects his focus from the, the project to the people to the person who is most responsible for its success and most critical to its completion, he personally begins to attack Nehemiah. And the reason why I think this is an important thing for us to note is that at some point, leadership always inevitably becomes personal. Now, it's the reason that most people really avoid any kind of real leadership position. You see, one of the things you find today in our culture, for example, it's hard to find really capable people who want to run for political office because why would somebody want to do that to themselves? I mean, really, they know that they're going to be vilified. I, I've seen it with people in our own congregation. I mean, three different individuals I knew who ran for even county offices here, and they were so vilified and ripped apart in, in the newspaper articles that were written designed to destroy their candidacy that it was, you read it and you said, it doesn't look anything like the person that I know. And you realize at that point, and I saw with each one of these people, they did it once, never again were they going to put their head into that arena because they just got ripped to shreds. And so one of the things we find even within the church is that sometimes when you step into a leadership role, it can be kind of toxic because you find yourself subject to criticism. And sometimes justifiably, but sometimes just because people are critical. One of the things we have to understand is that you already are a leader. 
whether you recognize that or not, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if Jesus is your leader, He's leading you into circumstances where you're going to, without even recognizing it, exert a kind of leadership on other people. Jesus said, follow me. Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. So essentially, when I follow Jesus, I end up following a leader who in turn makes me into a leader of other people. So you may not recognize it or even think it's true of you, but let me tell you, if you're in a family, you're a leader of that family. If you're on a job, you're a spiritual leader in that job. If you are in, in education or any industry, whatever it is, the way that you follow Jesus makes you a leader as to how to follow Jesus. Given that reality that you are a leader, whether you want to disavow it or not, the simple fact is you are And secondly, you need to recognize that at some point, it's going to get personal. At some point, you're going to become the object of criticism and attack because simply Satan doesn't want you to lead. He wants you to pull back and duck under the table and stay out of the line of fire. Now, so what I want to do is I want to give you the fine print at the bottom of the contract that nobody reads when we talk about becoming a leader. God wants you to be a leader, but do you understand what that involves? You know, I often say that anybody who wants a job of leadership doesn't know what the job is. They don't really understand it because it involves some really, really difficult things. And the reason why it happens, the math is pretty simple, that when you become a leader, your profile becomes elevated, which is another way of saying you make a much easier target to hit. The more visible you are, the more you're going to find that you're going to be targeted for criticism by people, sometimes fairly, justifiably, but I would quite honestly say most of the time it's not fair, it's not justified, and it's just not even right. Why do we do that? Well, the simple fact is that we're all fallible. I mean, every one of us makes mistakes, it's, and, and if you're human, you're gonna, they can, somebody's going to be able to find something to criticize you for. I mean, how many here are married? So you already understand this dynamic, right? I mean, it's just, you know, uh, my wife married me because I was perfect and without sin. And then after we were married for about 20 minutes, she wondered where the aliens had taken the real me and why they had left this guy behind because they realized this guy has his warts like everybody else. That's the simple reality. There's something to criticize about you, easy enough, because, and we, but we also find that people tend to be critical. I mean, think about it. People criticize God. All the time, they criticize God. They criticize His Word. Why do you think it's strange that they would be critical of you? I mean, I don't know what our expectation is. So that you have to understand that if you're in a leadership role, despite your best efforts, despite your most sincere intentions, you're going to get criticized for things because sometimes you'll get things wrong. Sometimes you'll make mistakes. Sometimes you'll even have failures for which you will be criticized, even vilified, by certain people because we live in that kind of a culture. And what do I mean by saying we live in that kind of culture? Well, let me put it this way. Every culture in the world is dysfunctional. Does anybody disagree with that? I mean, you look around the world and you see every culture is dysfunctional. We as Americans spend a lot of time beating ourselves up about all the problems that we have in America. But I tell you, travel the world as I have and you'll see we're a lot better off than most places out there, right? Because every one of those cultures has dynamics in them. You think, why would you do this? It's so unhealthy, so self-destructive. What I've also seen is that Christianity comes into cultures and first becomes counterculture, but as it becomes accepted by that culture, it begins to absorb the culture. So the church in every culture, when it begins to become established begins to bring the same dysfunctionality that is part of that culture into the church so that the church starts operating more like the world it's part of than it does the church in imitation of Jesus. So how would that apply, apply, apply to us in this culture? We live in a culture that is highly competitive. We have a success-oriented culture. 
The most fearful thing that can happen to you is to fail or be called a failure. Remember uh, a couple decades ago, the big put down was to go, loser, you know, that's part of our cultural value system. The worst thing that can be said to you is, you lost. So that the athlete knocks the other guy down and hovers over him and badmouths and says all this stuff to him, trash talks to him, this is considered to be, you know, the way that you dominate and you win because whoever's on top is the winner. That's why this, this, this rousy girl, uh, boxer, you know, I mean, was, I, I hate to admit, I didn't watch it, but I was kind of refreshed when the gal got in her face and said, don't cry like a baby. In 34 seconds, that gal was on the floor. I thought, ah, there's some poetic justice there. But the whole idea is, I found myself saying, yeah, man, he, she just smashed it. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. We have this winning mentality. We love the winners, we hate the losers. So what does it do in the church? It creates us into this competitive atmosphere where we, we value ourselves by nickels and noses and programs and dynamics. We have celebrity pastors, which I have looked the Scriptures from top to bottom. I've never been able to find an example of one. In fact, Paul said <laughs> his great moment of celebrity was when they cut his head off. Peter's was when they crucified him upside down. Hardly what you'd say, most popular guy in campus stuff. But the simple fact is that we bring into the culture kind of this competitiveness, and it's all about winning. It's all about winning. How can we outpace the other guy? So what happens is, I know in churches, if church A down the street suddenly begins to have some successful, wonderful thing happen, everybody sits back and goes, well, I'm so happy for their success, but... They must be doing something wrong, and we begin to look for the chink in the armor. We see it in our own relationships with others. We see that God seems to be just blessing somebody in a wonderful way, and we sit back and go, I don't get it. Why is God blessing them? I'm a better Christian than they are. How do how, how they deserve that? Because I'm more faithful to God than they are. Instead of rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, we end up becoming cursing those who are rejoicing. In fact, the famed Blaise, Blaise Pascal, who's one of the most brilliant minds of all time, he's really the father of, the, of really the whole modern computer system we know today, but here's a 17th century genius who basically wrote in his pensée, which is, means his thoughts, he made an interesting statement about human nature. He says, man without Christ, man without God, has only two driving passions, hatred and self-hatred. And so you create this vicious uh, competitive dynamic where Paul said to the Galatians, if you bite and devour one another, will you not be consumed by one another? So that one of the things you have to understand is that if you step into any role of leadership, you will become the target of criticism, sometimes fairly, most of the time unfairly. And you just have to understand that comes with the turf. More on that in a moment. Because Paul simply said to Timothy, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's going to happen, not maybe. Well, here's the great irony. Your reputation is probably the most valuable asset you possess, believe it or not. And it's also the most fragile because all, you can spend a lifetime building your reputation and you can have it destroyed in minutes by one slanderous tongue. It's the reason why James gave this warning in, in his letter to the church. He said, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is a fire that sets the whole course of life on fire and itself is set on fire by hell. What Sanballat understood was that if he could destroy Nehemiah's reputation, he could destroy not only Nehemiah, but far more important to him, the wall that Nehemiah was building. Because in a very honest way, I think Nehemiah or Sanballat could have said to you, it's not personal, it's business. His business was to stay powerful and in control. That wall was going to threaten his business of being power and in control. And so it, he didn't give a rip about Nehemiah as a person. He gave a rip about Nehemiah as a leader and how it was going to undermine his power and his ability to win. 
So how did he go about this? Well, it's kind of fascinating when you watch it because he uses five different approaches, all designed, as Nehemiah says, to intimidate him. In fact, the word is used five times to describe the actions that are brought against him, to intimidate him, or literally the Hebrew word appears five times, and it really means the same thing. It means to terrify you to the point where you run away. It's just to terrify you to where you run away, you give up. And the first thing he did was basically he attempts to assassinate him. Now, you got to admire the efficiency of this approach. He says that Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono, which would have been about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. He says, but they were scheming to harm me, or to put it in simpler terms, they just wanted me to get out there and then they were going to kill me. Now, like I say, that's efficient. If you want to end the threat, you just kill it. You know, somebody once said, if you want to kill a snake, cut its head off. That's the same idea. You want to stop this project, you take away the key leader, and that's the end of the story. Uh, fortunately, Nehemiah saw through that, but they came back four times asking him to go. And he had to say, no, 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 I can't. And we'll talk about more about his reasoning on that. Then having failed that, they began to use the age-old standard of slander. They said, Sanballat sent his assistant to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, of course it must be true because Geshem never lies, uh, that you and the Jews are plotting revolt. You are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. Now this is really amazing. He, we sent it in an unsealed letter. You know why they sealed letters in those days? So people wouldn't read the letter. <laughs> when you leave it unsealed, it's intentional. It's basically taking something and posting it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. You want the world to see it. By the way, some of the stuff you guys post, why would you want to know them? Anyway, but anyway, you want the world to know. And that was the idea. He's actually trying to start the rumor, trying to get the slander out there. Now, let's be clear about what slander is. We have a difference in definition between our legal standard of what is slander in America and what is biblically the standard of slander. In America, if you say something that's untrue about something and substantially harm them, you've slandered them. But if it's true, then it's not slander. The biblical standard says slander is anything that you say about another person to denigrate them in the eyes of others, even if it's true, even if it's true. And it's a subtle thing because most of us don't make that kind of distinction. Somebody will come and say, well, have you heard? And they'll tell something, and even if it's true, the whole purpose of telling somebody else is to tear that other person down in an effort to lift ourselves up. And so basically, this is what Sambalad does. He knows this isn't true. He doesn't care that it's not true. It serves the objective. How can I bring this guy down? Thirdly, having failed that, he tries entrapment. And what is entrapment? Well, it's to induce somebody to do something that's wrong so that you can hold them criminally liable for what they've done. And we read about that in verse 10 where he says, One day I went to the house of Shimei, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel. And this is, in other words, this is one of, the high, one of the priests, the chief priests. This is a very important guy in the religious system of the country. And he says, he was shut in at his home. So here he is, he's locked the doors, closed the windows, and Nehemiah gets a message to come to his house, and Nehemiah knocks on the door, and the guy peers out through the little box and says, Who's there? It's Nehemiah. Quick, come in. Opens the door, ushers him in, shuts the door and locks it again. You know, Nehemiah's saying, okay, what's going on? He says, they're trying to kill you. Now, if they're trying to kill Nehemiah, why is he hiding? I mean, this doesn't make any sense to me anyway. They're trying to kill you. Let's you and I go and run to the temple and we'll lock the doors of the temple and we'll hide in there so they can't get to you. Um, how was he trying to attempt, uh, entrap him? Nehemiah was not a priest. It was illegal for him to go into the temple at any time in his entire life. So he's trying to terrify him to do something that he knows is wrong so that he can save his own life. 
Now, Nehemiah wisely saw through this for a couple reasons. The very first thing he says, should a man like me run away? In other words, here I am trying to build confidence in the laborers and the people to believe that God has their back and we're going to succeed at this project. I'm trying to be fearless in the face of threatening circumstances. If I run away, then that fear will spread to everybody and everybody will run away. Smite the shepherd, scatter the sheep. Understand that principle. He understood the principle and said, I'm not doing that. But secondly, he says, should one like me go into the temple and save his life, I will not go. You see, the real key here is that he goes on to say, I realized that God had not sent him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this and they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So that even if he wasn't killed, they would create a reputation that this is not a guy that you can trust, and therefore he is discredited, and people will stop following his leadership. Well, that fails, and so where are we going next? Well, then they rely upon deception. And this is the hardest part of all, because the very priests and prophets who are supposed to be the spiritual guides to the nation now begin to try to discouraged the very thing that God was doing. It says that in addition to Shimei, the priest, there were these prophets who were coming to Nehemiah and saying, I have a word for you from the Lord. And that's why he prays to us. He says, remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate us, to intimidate me. He doesn't tell us what it is they were saying. He's just simply saying their motive was not to build me up spiritually, but to discourage me spiritually and to weigh me down. And so they used their position as a way of intrigue. One of the things I just simply say is that what kept Nehemiah free from a lot of these things is he knew what God's Word said. He knew what God's Word said. And you and I go through experiences in our life where uh, we're, being, we're getting a lot of adverse information into our life and we're you know, trying to sort out what's right. Our own imaginations begin to run crazy and go wild and think all sorts of strange things. How do you keep from becoming foolish in your response to life? And the answer is you go to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? What does Scripture say? And this becomes Nehemiah's response. He knows, I don't go into the temple. He knows that what they're telling him to do is not what God is telling him to do just from reading Scripture itself. And so I'm, it reminds me of something that happened with my, my uh, father-in-law, who's 92 years of age now. But he told me once that he, after he'd first become a Christian, he was going to this little uh, Pentecostal church, and one of the elders of the church came up to him and said, Brother Tom... God has shown me that He's called you, He's anointed you, He's fire-baptized you in the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. You're to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know my father-in-law, you realize he is a really, really gifted carpenter. He really is good. He's mild-mannered. He's really a wonderful guy. But preaching is not his calling. I just guarantee you, he would tell you that. And I loved the way he responded to this gentleman. I thought it was powerful. He, he just looked at the guy and said, huh, I wonder why God never told me. <laughs> I'm just saying, get it from God. You know, God, may, God will use others to confirm His will, but He's going to speak to you first. And that's why my response oftentimes that people over the years have come to me and says, well, the Lord showed me that this and this and this and this. And I go, well, you know what? If it comes to pass, then we'll know that was God. And if it doesn't come to pass, we'll know it was that bad marinara sauce you had on your pizza last night. We'll know which one it was. But we won't blame it on God because it's important that we know that it is from God. Which brings me to the last thing they try, and that's simple intrigue. Intrigue means to to make secret plans to do something illicit or detrimental to another person. It's really beginning to try to do things that would harm somebody else. Where he tells us in verse 17, he says, Also in those days the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them, for many in Judah were under oath to him. Since he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, and moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent me letters to intimidate me. 
He'll deal with Tobiah further on in the book, we'll find. But it's interesting because here are these men who are the leaders of the nation who have a primary loyalty to Tobiah because they're on the take. They're getting money and political power and influence from being aligned with Tobiah. And so they see, set themselves up to really be someone who limits the effectiveness of Nehemiah. So here's this amazing consortium. You got priests, you got prophets, you got princes, all trying to fill in with fear and self-doubt, or as he says in the word, to terrify me to the point where I would just give up doing the project. In a very well, real sense, he must have felt that there was no one else that he could trust. I mean, who is safe? Who is genuine? Who is trustworthy? You see, this is the worst kind of situation because we complain a lot about having superficial relationships today. We say we don't have deep relationships, we have superficial relationships. And to some degree, that's not possible to have more than a superficial relationship because to have a deep relationship, you have to spend a lot of time with somebody. It just doesn't happen overnight. But we often find that people prefer a superficial relationship because they don't want to get entangled on a deeper level. But this isn't superficial relationships. This is something even worse. It's artificial relationship. Relationships that are an artifice that I'm pretending to be your friend when in fact I'm just trying to get the inside advantage on you. In fact, Solomon described this in Proverbs 27, 6. He says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. John Townsend, in his book, Hiding from Love, makes this interesting statement. He said, unsafe people will never tell you something you don't want to hear. Unsafe people will never tell you something you don't want to hear. What does he mean by that? He says, basically, people who are trying to take advantage of you will always flatter you and say kind things in order to win your trust, but the real idea is simply to take advantage of you in the process. The true mark, he said, of friendship, a person who is really safe, is that they will take you aside and they'll tell you the truth. They'll take you aside because they care enough to confront something that they're concerned with. They're living out Galatians 6.1. If I see my brother overtaken in a fault, I'm going to go to him in the spirit of meekness, of humility, and I'm just seek to do whatever I can to restore him or her to a place of fruitfulness in Christ. When that doesn't happen, then it shouldn't be called love. It shouldn't be called brotherhood. It's not because they're doing something that's more designed for their own advantage and self-protection than it is to actually care for somebody else. A true friend loves more than a brother. And the idea of a brother is that a brother is someone who you're connected to for life. I think my closest friend in the whole world is my older brother. That came from years growing up of being my closest enemy. You know, you assault and threaten each other and try to take advantage of it long enough that you become bonded together. But especially in Christ, this brotherhood, this, this thing that whatever is good for him brings me joy, whatever harms him brings me true sadness. And that's what Christ has called us to. Not trying to find the way that we can gain the advantage over one another, but how can we help one another to experience the advantages that God wants to bestow upon them? So the question I really have as I look at all this is how in the world did Nehemiah stay strong in the face of these wanton personal attacks? I mean, this stuff, we can read through it and not really pick up the fact that Nehemiah must have really gone through some deep, difficult, emotional struggles, kind of like you and I go through. How did he deal with that when you feel like you can't trust the people that are closest to you, the people that are all around you. You're continually discovering that they're wearing another mask. They're operating under a different guise. Well, there's four things that really stand out that I saw in this chapter. The first thing is we read him saying when he first is confronted by these guys, he says, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Interesting. Now, we would think that the, he would start by saying, well, I'm going to be faithful to God. And he certainly was. But he understood something that's critical for every leader to understand. He says, I am involved in a great work. 
What I am doing is important. It matters. And if I'm not faithful, it can come to an end. This is too important for me to jeopardize. And I think that's where we need to start when you talk about being leaders, that whatever we're doing, we recognize is what God wants us to do, and because it's what God wants us to do, it is of absolute importance. I can't tell you how many things that God would do through certain people's never happen because people lose sight of how important it is. And they begin to put their own feelings in front of what God is getting put in front of them, and so they quit and they walk away. Sticking with what God has put before you is critical, not only to ultimately be successful, but also to really declare what is most important to God. He says, what I am doing is important. Sometimes I think, oh, how did I end up pastoring this church for almost 32 years? Well, at the root of it is this deep sense that doing this is important, that doing this is something that's important. It's more important than how I feel or how I'm doing or the way the world feels or how any of those things. It's more important than any of those kind of things. It's something that you can't put your hand to the plow and then turn back. The second thing that stands out about him is that he realized not only was he doing a great work, but he was doing it for a great God. He began this whole thing by saying in chapter 1 and verse 5, he said, Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. This phrase, great and awesome God, is actually just one word in Hebrew. Great and awesome is one word. It's a word that simply means magnificent in, in magnitude and in glory. It means it's intensity beyond all intensity. It's importance above all else that's important. So you tie these two things together. I'm doing a great job, a great work, under the employment of an even greater God. And therefore, I cannot turn to the left or the right. I need to stay on the task that God has given me, regardless of what consequences may come to me. But there's a secondary thing in this as well, that if my God is so great, I know this about Him, according to what John said in his first letter to the church. He wrote, Dear children, you are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That the God who has given you and I a great project to accomplish is the same God who has the great power and ability to fulfill it. Never measure the task by your own resources. When God calls you to do something, never measure the calling by what you have in your pocket or what you have in your head or what you have in terms of life experience. Because God's callings are His enablings. He empowers you to do whatever He wants you to do. And that's what's important for us to understand. When he says, Paul wrote and said, we have this treasure, speaking about the power of the Holy Spirit, inside earthen vessels or clay jars, we often look at ourselves and say, well, I'm just a stinking clay jar, cracked pot, and I don't know how useful it's going to be. The simple fact is, he says, Peter says, he has cleansed you and he has made you into a vessel of honor. And what makes you glorious is what He has put into you. God has sanctified your body by His Holy Spirit, by His redemption through the cross. Your body has been sanctified, and it is presented to God to be a container to be filled with the things of God that you might live and serve and fulfill His glorious purpose for your life. God says, I promise you, you'll succeed. You'll be victorious. When I was talking to the gentleman between services, he was talking about being afraid to make the wrong decision regarding a career path because he didn't want to fail at what he was called to do. And I said, you know what? You can't fail. You've already won. You are more than a conqueror. You've already succeeded. You found Jesus. You're saved. You're going to heaven. You're secure in that position you have in Christ. You have already win, won. Does that mean you can't make wrong decisions and wrong choices? Sure, you can. But God is great at redirecting the traffic of your life. He calls them open and closed doors. If you make a decision going the wrong way, as long as you're saying, Lord, I just want you to direct me, I don't worry about, is that the right or the wrong decision? I just know that He can create a door where there's even a hinge. You know, He can create a door and let me go through it if that's what He wants. But the fear or the intimidation of making a mistake and getting it wrong and having egg on our face and being criticized by other people is a trap from the pits of hell 
that makes God small in the eyes of the world. We serve a great God who has called us to do a great work. And He has said that He offers us the avenue, and this is the third thing we see with Nehemiah. He's a great man of prayer. He prays great prayer. In fact, this prayer is probably the shortest prayer that he prayed in the entire book of Nehemiah. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible. It's only got four words. What is his prayer? Strengthen my hands. It was a timely prayer. Right now, it tells me he's being beaten up, he's being pushed down, he's struggling, he's confronting issues, and he prays this prayer, Lord, give me the strength to keep going. Some of you right now, all you need is the strength to make it through today. And then tomorrow morning, you need to wake up and you need to ask God to give you the strength to make it through tomorrow. Now, if you do that every day of your life, you suddenly have done that for a lifetime. But God's promise is He will give you the strength you need to finish the course. So here's Nehemiah. What does he do? As I've said so many times, prayer for Nehemiah was not his last resort. It was his first response. And as he's confronting these threatening dynamics, I mean, think about it. They want to kill him. It's not, not in a theoretical sense. They want literally to take his life. His life is constantly under threat, and his prayer isn't, hide me, deliver me, let me go back to Persia. Why did I leave that dream job to take this one? But rather, his response is, give me the strength to stay the course. Because no one ever finishes the course by quitting. No one ever finishes the course by quitting. He prayed, God, give me the strength to keep going. And it's where I get to the fourth and final thing. That he's a man who understood that he was the object of great grace. At the end of the day, Nehemiah knew that he wasn't the one who was going to get the job done. In fact, when he first recruits the leaders to do the project, he said to them in chapter 4, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me. I told them, I am a man of grace. I am a man of God. I am a man who has the graciousness of God upon my life. And so are you. You have God's grace that empowerment, because the grace of God is not just simply a theological term, but the grace of God is a way of describing the evident power of God as it moves through holy, undeserved, and incapable beings to accomplish amazing things for God. So that when you look at your life and you have some, some challenge put in front of you, some opportunity, and somebody says, hey, you know, I think you'd be great to, to help out with a four-year-old on Sunday school. And you're thinking about, well, why did you choose me? And they'll tell you honestly, I held your hand, you had a pulse. So come with me, you know. <laughs> you just have to be breathing. You held the mirror up to your nose, and I got a little mist on there, so I know that you're alive. So that's all I need. And you're going, I can't do this. I don't know how to care for four-year-olds. Well, let me in a secret. Neither their parents. But the, <laughs> the whole point is that, <laughs> you know, it's herding cats. Really, it's the same thing. But if God really wants you to do something like that, you're going to find the grace of God is going to be there. It doesn't matter where it is. The grace of God is going to be upon you to enable you to do what He wants. And in fact, it's so wonderful when grace is allowed to have free expression in our life, when grace is allowed to drive your life. Look at the consequence in the very last verse. So the wall was completed in 52 days. When all of our enemies heard about this, they were afraid, lost their confidence. Why? Because Nehemiah was such a scary, tough guy? No, because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. See, that's the end of the story. That's the point we want to get to. At the end of the day, when you've just kind of withered through all the hardships and the difficulties and the challenges, you just kind of continue to throw one foot in front of another. Or maybe in your case right now, it's simply you're on your face and you're crawling one inch at a time and you just keep on trying to go forward. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the grace of God will get you across the finish line in exactly the right moment in time. Because God controls time, not the clock, not other people, not that guy who's driving below the speed limit when you got to be someplace. 
God controls all of these dynamics, and He can get you there early if He wants. If He wants you there late, you'll never make it, no matter how hard you try. But the whole point is, it's all of grace at the end of the day, because that's when God gets the glory. When people, when God, when people look at you and me and then go, how did they get from here to there? I gave them up for dead, and they're back. How did that happen? Believe me, they're not going to sit there and say, well, it's because he's so special. He can take a licking and keep on ticking. You know, it's, it's, that's not what they're going to They're going to go, there is a God. There is a God. This is a hard concept for us in our culture to embrace. You know why? Because as I said earlier, we're a success-based culture. Being a success-based culture means that we can, you know, go into a, a Republican debate, just saying theoretically. We can go into a Republican debate, and we can just start shouting, spouting off stuff because we're rich and famous and desperately need a hair makeover. We can, we can do these things, right? And people admire that. Wow. Successful. I, you know... He may be a jerk, maybe have some personality issues, maybe totally a narcissistic sociopath, but he's rich. He's won. He's succeeded. Does God get the glory? No. Where God gets the glory is when He takes people like you and me who need a hair makeover but can't afford it, who <laughs> we're not rich, we're not famous. We're not clever, we're not brilliant, we're not talented. We're, we suffer from the worst of all maladies in our culture. We're ordinary. We're like everybody else. And then God does something exceptional with you. And people step back and go, there is a God. There is a God. There is a God. I'll never forget going to my 20-year high school reunion. The last one I've been back, they banned me from the rest of them. But I, I committed a sin. I was the only guy who was sober. And uh, <laughs> I, I went to a small boarding school, so there wasn't a lot of students. And we had about 60 students in our class. And so they had each of us come up and share what we've been doing with our lives. And everybody's getting up, you know, doctor, lawyer, so forth and so on. And <laughs> I got up there. And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And I've been sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ these many years and then gave this salvation message. You know, it was the only time where it was just complete silence. <laughs> we called that stunned silence because they just remembered me getting expelled out of high school for making wine in the dorm. And, and you know, I had one guy come up to me and just going, <laughs> he didn't, you know, I, you, that doesn't work for me anymore. You know, it's like, you just understand that at the end of the day, they look at you and go, God must have actually really touched him because that's not characteristic. How does that happen? It doesn't happen by you suddenly learning the new formula. It happens when you just decide, I'm going to follow Jesus regardless. And there'll be times when you'll follow Him and you'll have nobody else by your side. There'll be no applauses. There'll be no cheering crowds. There'll be no approbations or affirmations. There'll be no congratulations. There'll be nobody urging you on saying, good job, you can do it. It's not like running Bloomsday where you've got people who don't even know you who are cheering you on. They're not holding a cup of water. They're throwing sticks at you. You're going to go through those seasons and you just simply say, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to keep on going and I keep on going and keep on going. I'm going to stay on the track that God has put in front of me. And one day, your enemies will be ashamed because they'll realize that God is with you. Don't give up on your marriage. Don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on your relationships, even though they become harmful or hurtful. Don't give up on that job or that direction that God's called you. Don't give up. If God has set, put you there, you need to remember what you're doing. That marriage is a great work brought together by a great God 
who wants to hear great prayers coming from people so he can pour out great grace upon them and make that relationship everything God wants it to be. I have people coming all the time with friends and family members who are away from God, and they're so far from God they'll never get saved. Stop doing that. You serve a great God who wants to do a great work and pour out great grace. He's just waiting for you to pour out great prayers of saying, God, do this. And at the end of the day, we sit back and go, God can do it. I've shared many times, but when my dad, I shared the gospel with my dad for 15 years. And it was, we'd have these conversations, well, these arguments and these debates and back and forth. There were times when he was in tears. He was so convicted. He would not give in to Christ because he had to win and he had to be in control. And then he went into for surgery, to exploratory surgery for cancer. And um, when I finally got to the hospital, they'd had the surgery. They found the cancer had spread all over the place. And I remember sitting there saying, Dad, as we're in the ICU in the recovery, and I said, Dad, are you ready to meet God? I thought, this will be the moment. And he said, yes. I said, no, let me rephrase that. Are you ready to meet? Because I know you're not. No, yeah, yeah. Are you ready to meet God? Yes, yes, I am. I said, what do you mean? He said, when I was laying in the hospital before my surgery, I read this book, and it's about this boy, this young student who got cancer and, and, and uh, gave his life to Christ. And so I asked Christ into my heart. That's not fair. <laughs> that should have been me. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. But it was like, it just blew me away because you know what the truth of the matter is? Right before that, I, had, I told God, I've been praying for him for 15 years. I've done everything I can. I'm not praying anymore. I'm done. I guess God was waiting for me to be done to show me that it's great grace. God could reach through a cheesy article in Reader's Digest to get to my dad as he's laying on what would soon prove to be his deathbed and not even knowing it and leading to a Savior. We serve a great God. We serve a great God who is a gracious God, who has a great project in front of you, whatever it is. Don't give up. Just pray great prayers and believe. And if all you can pray is three little words, give me strength. If that's all you can pray, then pray that prayer. God hears that, and He makes a difference. He changes the world. He changes you. Father God, I pray that You'd give us hearing hearts, comprehending minds, and surrendered will to what You want. That God, we, we're caught up in this cultural dynamic where being on top, being successful, being a winner is, is the way that we rate ourselves in, in, in relationship to everyone else and everything else. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to get off that treadmill and you'd loosen us, that we would begin to define ourselves by the greatness of our God, by the greatness of the purpose for which you have called us to live our lives, by the greatness of the grace that you have shown us that enables us to pray great prayers that can change the world. Just bring us that point, point we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.